Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large 100-plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Self Storage Income Podcast. This is Connor. This is going to be an awesome episode for you guys. Uh, AJ and I sat down with Drew from DXD Capital, and uh, those guys do a ton of phenomenal work. Uh, they are a real estate fund focused on development. So we talk everything raising capital, development, deal structure, markets, all this stuff. He's specialized in all kinds of different asset classes, but has also specialized specifically, yes, in self-storage, which is awesome. This is going to be a phenomenal episode. But before we do that, we're going to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Janice International. Speaking of capital, you need capital, you need funding, you need financing. Live Oak Bank is a fantastic resource for that. Be sure to go over to the link in the show notes and check out Live Oak Bank. Talk to Terry over there. We've done deals with with Terry. We've brought them in as a partner for this. We've chosen them specifically as a sponsor for this podcast due to all of the incredible work they do in actually knowing and understanding fully the self-storage asset class. So phenomenal group. Go check them out, Live Oak Bank. And our next sponsor, Janice International, incredible group of people that have decades upon decades of experience in the self-storage industry. We're talking about people that have been in this for a very long time. They know storage in and out. They started off in metal fabrication, doors, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they actually, a few years ago, purchased Noki, which is a keyless access system that can automate your facility. No, it's not going to be completely manless, nor should you ever try to have a completely manless uh, facility at scale. You should have people there on site helping to manage and uh, provide customer service for those tenants that you have. But Noki allows your tenants to actually look online, rent a unit, access the gate at the facility, access their unit, all of it directly from their phone through Bluetooth. It's an awesome tool. We've been plugging it in at a lot of our facilities. You can either wire it in a new build or you can retrofit an old facility. Let's say you own a facility that was built back in the 80s that doesn't have any of this type of wiring going on. And it would be a huge expense to get the conduit and the cables and everything ran for that. You can actually just utilize their battery-powered systems uh, of no-key in the latches. They have no-key one and other options that you guys can use. Phenomenal setups. Go check them out. Links in the show notes again. And again, guys, enjoy this episode. Soak it up. Take notes. Do everything you can. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks a bunch. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today... We are talking about raising capital. So we have Drew with us from DXD Capital, and he has risen like $600 million for a real bucks. estate. Uh, yeah, a little. Yeah, yeah just yeah. a little. So um, <laughs> I'm super excited to talk about it. We're going to talk about self-storage, raising capital, and deal structure. Um, I'm not going to get into too much, so before, just jump right into it. Drew, how's it going? 
Hey, great guys. Thanks for having me. Well, I, we appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your knowledge. Um, so for our audience here, why don't you give them a little background about you, what you uh, uh, do, and how, how you got into this crazy world of self-storage? Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, got uh, Education-wise, I got an engineering degree, and uh, but uh, graduating from Arizona State, I probably had some of the worst grades of any engineer graduating that year. But what I did have was a phenomenal resume, and I knew that I needed a great resume in order to kind of offset some really bad grades. So when I graduated, I had a you know internship with Boeing and Intel and the largest producer of copper cable. And so really what that taught me is what I wanted to do in terms of having an engineering degree. So I went into sales uh, for a company called Train that uh, manufactures HVAC. And I, I sold incredible data centers and uh, condo towers in San Diego. It was just an awesome job. But the group I loved working with the most was a real estate developer. They were developing office buildings all across the Western US. And these guys were having more fun, guys and gals, having more fun, making more money. I just was drawn to that side of the world. So about five years into my engineering career, I, I, I did a complete 180 uh, and I really went to work for a, a local developer who uh, took a risk on me. And you know I took a risk on him because I really didn't have any marketable skills for real estate development. You know, As a developer, you're like the conductor of an orchestra where you don't know how to play uh, the violin or, you know, um, know how to play the trombone, but you know what a good one sounds like. And so you have to know a little bit about everything. So I really felt like it took me, you know, kind of five years to understand the real estate development business. And uh, that was about 17 years ago. And what I gravitated towards, mostly because I didn't have any specific skills as a developer, you know, I wasn't a lawyer, I wasn't a civil engineer, or I wasn't an architect, so I never got pigeonholed in any one thing. But what I really gravitated toward was deal structure, how to raise money, how as the sponsor to make the most money, how to make your investors a good amount of money so they want to come back to you. And over that period of time, we've done you know a hundred different, or I've been a part of a hundred different real estate structures, both with high net worth and friends and family and country club capital and institutional investors and REITs. And, you know, what you, what I've found is there's just, um, there's no one deal that's ever the same as a past deal. And perhaps every deal needs its own structure. And so I, yes. I just gravitated toward it because I loved it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and now when did you get started in self-storage? So about five years ago, and the company that I was a president of, we were a very diverse developer um, based in, we had offices in Orlando, Austin and San Antonio and Albuquerque. And we were really good at developing different asset types within those markets. And I remember like, it was like the fifth person that came to us and said, hey, you guys are really good at multifamily and industrial and, and, and uh, senior living in these markets. Why aren't you doing self-storage? And so it was almost like a challenge, like, like you guys are really good at this. Why haven't you jumped into that? And so that's where, you know, I took uh, kind of the reins for the company and said, I'm going to jump into it. You know, I know nothing about it, but I'm going to call every contact I have. I'm going to go to SSA. I'm going to reach out to my network and learn as much as I can about it. And so uh, roughly about five years ago. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. And now, 
walk through for our audience here. You know, this seems like an, uh, I think, a little overwhelming task to most people. Like when you're going out to raise capital, right? What are the do's and don'ts? How do you approach it? What are the important things to be thinking about for raising capital for a deal? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of my fundamental tenets is if you protect your downside on a deal, the upside always takes care of itself. And so what do I mean by that? It's um, not not having too much debt that you can't service if the project doesn't go exactly the way you think. If you decide that you're going to operate it and you don't do a good job, who's the backup plan? Or you hire a third party operator and they don't do a good job. What's the backup plan? You know, do you have a good relationship with your equity partners? And if you need more capital, are they going to participate with you? Is your bank going to participate with you? So I think any good deal starts with what can go wrong. And if these things do go wrong, do I have the people around me and the partners that get me out of it? I love that. I love this idea of protecting your downside. You know, we, we're doing a development and that's not approved, anything like that. We're paying for the land in cash. It has to be rezoned. We have to bring it into the city. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a long process. And I mean, and when investors are looking at it, they're like, well, now hold on. What happens if the millions of things that could happen, right? And this doesn't work and how does it go through? And it was, you know, one of the strategic reasons we bought the property because the, we bought the property at five, bu- five and a half bucks a square foot. There weren't utilities going to it. And a mile down the road, the same exact basic property, right, is selling at 10 to 15 bucks a square foot because it has utilities, right? So our backup plan is like, listen, it doesn't even need to go perfect or good. We have a way to dispose of the land, still generate a profit. We're hedging our risks. And that brings a lot of comfort to investors. Because if not, it's like, I mean, you got to be very aware of when it hits the fan and when everything doesn't work the way you planned. What happens? Like, what what is the process? And what do you do? Yeah, well, you bring up a good point, because I tell a lot of our kind of newer investors that, look, what we do, real estate development is inherently risky. Yeah. And our job as the sponsor or the GP or the developer is to control that risk or to minimize that risk. We yeah. can't eliminate all yes. the risk, right? Yep. You can't guarantee the city's going to bring or, yep. or get you the zoning. You can't guarantee that the utilities are going to cost a certain mm-hmm. amount. But you do all the due diligence and all the background to say, I believe within this certainty we can get this thing done. And there's enough upside to do all that. So, you know, you're dead on. It's all about controlling risk. And what I also don't think uh, a lot of investors, uh, well, unless you've been through it a couple of times, appreciate is just how illiquid, you know, this business is. Yeah. And it's not like an ATM, you know, you deposit money in a deal and you say, oh, shit, you know, I've got a problem. I need to get that money yeah. back out. It no, doesn't work, it doesn't like, work that. like that. And because, you know, you have all these other investors and yourself as the sponsor that's counting on those investors to stay in the deal and to participate for the long term. And I think uh, finding investors who understand it is illiquid, 
the risk is higher with real estate, but that's because the reward is higher with real estate too. And so if you're going to invest in real estate, especially ground up, non-cash flowing, opportunistic deals, you know, just make sure it's money that you have uh, to play with. And yeah. if you lose it, you can lose it because uh, we've done um, you know, over a hundred deals. Our, our worst deal to date is we gave everybody back their capital. You know, yeah. that's our worst deal. Yeah. Best deal is something like a 10x, but yeah. you know everybody kind of focuses on the 10x and don't doesn't focus on yes. what really can happen if it doesn't go well. Hundred percent, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. That mentality of going in and as a sponsor, the person raising that capital, setting that that you know really that criteria and that understanding for investors um, because they're leaning so much on you, right? So, so it's their, they don't know what they're doing. So if you're like, oh, this is great, everything else like that, it's important to, I always yeah. think, remind, 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 this is risky. You can lose all of it. This can go totally south. And just be blunt about it. Like, I'm totally blunt about it. Because I'm like, if you're not okay with me being that blunt about it, you shouldn't be doing this um, on these development deals. Because I don't want to be responsible for somebody giving me their, life savings or whatever. Right. And being like, Oh, I thought this was a sure thing. I thought there was no way it could fail. Right. I never want to be in that position ever. Like I, I don't need your money. I don't want to like it's, you can keep that. Um, so when you try to find those people, when you're looking for those people to invest with you, you know, how, who are you going to, are you just going to groups or is it just personal contacts? You're hitting the phones. Um, like, are you creating a package and just sending it out to email lists that you're trying to accrue? Like, how does one go about building that investor pipeline? Yeah, I, I think for us, um, it starts with a relationship. Um, we don't widely solicit, uh, it's not marketed, um, we're a real estate fund and part of our SEC exemption is that we have a relationship with that investor, um, which is why you won't see us advertising on a radio or blast emails. Yeah. So uh, in that, I think having that relationship, it does, you know, create if things go really well and you want them to invest more and if things go really badly, you know, you want them to stick with you, that relationship matters. And, and what I think about is you're looking for investors who like you and like what you do, you know, and believe you can be successful and really understand the fundamentals of what the investment are. You know, those are kind of my three criteria. So I, I've been doing this for 15 years and it's it's not like I, you know, the my real mentor in this business, he had a book of those relationships. And then I started uh, helping him manage those relationships and then creating own, my own relationships. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but yeah. I, where I think it does happen is you find people who most of them have been very successful in business and have generated value for their family or personally through whatever business it is. And typically with those people, there's been a component of real estate whether they own the real estate on their existing building or they bought land they wanted to expand to and the value went up, like they've had some success with real estate. So it's almost like they've had exposure prior to coming to you and they know they need more exposure to it. But 
they realize what you do is so much more difficult than what they do yeah. in terms of structure and debt and design and civil and legal. And they're like, you know, yeah, I could do it on my own, but what I do is good of a job yeah. as if I invested with somebody else. And so like they appreciate the nature and the sophistication of what you bring to the table. Yeah. hundred percent. I love that. The appreciation of your partner, right? Yep. And they trust you, they get the fundamentals of it, but the awareness of this is not easy and there's risk and business owners inherently understand risk. They see that ebbs and flows of cash flow, right? They understand that cash flow is not a consistent, everlasting thing like a paycheck. It's not how it works, right? We have good times, we have bad times, you have development cycles, you need to uh, build in your capital cost and it may take one year to fill up, two year to three year to fill up. And those scenarios are all substantially different when you're looking at payouts, total returns, and you don't want somebody that's saying, hey, I'm expecting a check every single month or whatever that may be because they will be shocked by the entire process. And uh, making sure that you are dealing with people, first of all, like you said, can lose the gap or whatnot, but have a very, uh, not a very good, but an understanding of how those cash flows and investments work and what is needed to be done. That'll take a lot of work off your plate because you're not explaining things and you're not trying to put out fires and you're not with somebody that's, hysterical that their, you know, cash flow went down in the slow season versus the up season, whatever that may be. Um, that takes a lot of work off you as a sponsor. And are these accredited investors or unaccredited investors? Who do you go after? Uh, accredited. Yeah, they're kind of a minimum accredited because that's our requirement for an SEC exemption. It doesn't, you know, um, on a one-off deal, it doesn't mean they have to be accredited. And, and this is kind of where I'd, I'd say, you know, have a great attorney. Have a great yep. attorney that understands real estate, understands structure, and is there to keep you out of trouble as the sponsor and make sure that you you know what all your options are. Uh, but I also want to go back to one thing. You know, when we talk about investing in self storage, there's so many different angles, right? You could buy uh, a value add property. You could just buy a cash flow property that isn't value add, or you could kind of uh, climb Everest day one and say, I'm just going to build it ground up, right? Those are um, yeah. three very different investment scenarios if you want to do it yourself with very different risk return profiles. You know, and if I had one bit of advice is there's nothing wrong with starting small. There's nothing wrong with starting to invest in something that is less risky because no matter how many articles you read on the web, about self-storage, no matter how many podcasts you listen to, there's certain value in just doing it, just getting in there and doing it and learning these lessons. And, you know, we always say it, we learn so much more from our mistakes than we ever do from yeah. our wins. And, uh, you know, I think what, what very seasoned real estate investors want to hear from me like when I'm introducing, we're talking. And there's one one guy that's been a longtime investor of ours, and I met him about five years ago. He didn't want to hear about any of our successes. He wanted to hear about all the failures, yeah. all the things that went wrong, and what we did about it. 
because that's really, you know, how people judge you because you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. It's really what you do when you make those mistakes that makes you a success or not. Mm-hmm. No, I, I really love that. I think that's a really great point to bring up because a lot of people do, you know, they read the books, they listen to the podcast, they, they do whatever they're doing and then they jump into it and they're like, wait a second, they didn't talk about that in the book or in the podcast. Like nobody brought this up. Like all these situations from development to acquisition to uh, the value adds, they're, they're so dynamic and they're so different each and every single one there's not just this one step-by-step guide for anything you know you've got your general fundamentals for for what you're doing in each asset class and and how you're going about it but every every one of them is so dynamic so different like that that's such a great point to bring up that that people need to understand well and markets change situations change and when you're dealing with a sponsor it's important to understand as an investor or like i that idea that I want this, I want to know what went wrong because it is, it's a guaranteed, just like you said. So something will go wrong. That's a hundred percent guaranteed. Now the severity of it, that will differ wildly, right? But something will go wrong. And if that person, that sponsor has never had anything go wrong, you don't know what they'll do and how they'll react. And for me, that's the most dangerous part of investing is when things go wrong, what happens? How do we mitigate? How do we handle this? Do they keep a cool head? Do they freak out? All that kind of stuff. And and if you haven't been with somebody that's been through it, you don't know that. You don't know when we get hit with a great recession, you know, what they're going to do. And I've seen, you know, being in storage through those times, I could tell you right now and both the Great Recession and through COVID, um, operators acted very differently, right? Um, COVID was a perfect example. We picked up the best deals that we picked up in a year because there's some operators and some investors and business owners that they they just went, they freaked out immediately and they disposed of their asset at all costs and we got a screaming deal because we kept a cool head. And the same thing happened uh, during the recession. And it's how they react will determine the success of the project when it hits the fan. Yeah, to your point, um, you know, the last, the great financial recession, loose lending uh, in a lot of different sectors, especially single family, you know, kind of led to this crisis, right? But coming into this recession, there was no loose lending. Deals were solid. I mean, you know, it wasn't a real estate-led recession. Yeah. However, as a developer, you could have done everything right, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you get hit with this black swan. And the key is, you're always you're always going to try to be prepared for what you think bad can happen, but you also got to be prepared for what you don't, don't know, know is going to happen. Yes. We could just hit you, and so. Part of that is, uh, <clears throat> you know, are you leveraged appropriately? Um, do you have enough term on your loan so that if there's this crazy blow up moment, the bank's going to give you, you know, another 12 months? Do you have a relationship with the bank that and and this this was very different this last recession. So we had um, senior living assets and hospitality assets. This is outside of DXD that I was managing. And, you know, last recession, 2009, banks would call and say, you got to get it, th- this off our books right now. Or, we're, you know, we don't want this. 
difference now is every bank wanted to work with you. And every bank essentially said, okay, it was amortizing, but we'll take it to interest only. Or if it wasn't even, you know, cash flowing at interest only, we're going to say, okay, you're not going to pay us for six months, but we'll tack it onto the bank back in. And so, you know, having a relationship, especially a local relationship with a bank, and, and that's very different. And I would say, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, local banks want to see local people succeed in a local market. They're incentivized to yeah. do that. Yeah. And if you have a problem, they're going to figure it out with you more so than a bank from out of state or yeah. a national bank. Yep. And, you know, um, couldn't agree more on that. That's just just so valuable. And, and you think it's a transaction. And no, it's really a relationship. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, well, it, you know, once you work with banks long enough and everything to I don't mean this for any banking people in a bad way at all, but they don't know anything about it, right? They're putting their money and they're trying to build a relationship with the people they think lowers the best risk. Who's going to perform the best? Who's going to? That is their job, is making a good decision on who they give money to, not knowing the thing that person is doing. They don't know anything about storage. They don't know what makes it successful or not. All they're doing is betting on you. I'm simply saying you have a lower risk and I'm mitigating risk by going with an experienced person. We see your track record. We understand what you're doing. And those people, right, those are the people that make banks money. It's a partnership. They want to give more money to them. They want to build relationships and trust. And the more they do, the more they work together. Because you defaulting doesn't help the bank, right? And when you're dealing with like local banks, like credit unions, like things like that. No, they, they don't want any defaults. They're not big enough. They want to work through it. It makes no financial sense for them, especially if it's a short-term thing to let's just work through this and get over and get over it together. I, I could not agree more with you. And when you're dealing with investors on that same token, like you said, that's who you want. Just like the bank, you want the people that are there for you. They believe in you. They know you'll react. And even if times get hard, they know, hey, you're our guy. You're going to work us through this. Yeah, a couple comments on the investor side. So, you know, you do a one-off deal. You raise 35% or 40% equity for a total project. You know, there'll be provisions in that agreement that say, if we need more capital, we get to come back and ask you, our investors, for more capital, right? So this is one of the, the biggest differences between deal-by-deal deal investing and what I do on the fund. Uh, the fund that we raise and typical funds, we don't have an opportunity to go back to our investors and ask them for additional capital. Whatever commitment they make, they are topped out at. Yeah. Now the fund takes all this equity and invests it in 10 different deals. So it gets diversity. Mm-hmm. So if one deal underperforms, it's offset by a deal that overperforms. But we need to reserve the capital at the fund level in case we have any problems with deals. So it's why, you know, again, we can't ask our investors for more money. We better have some dry powder to solve an issue on a project level. Now go, going back to deal by deal uh, investment, they will all have capital call provisions because as the sponsor, you must be able to go get more capital, whether it's your existing partners or outside capital. And these are really key provisions to pay attention to. So if you go back to your partners and if you're going back for more capital, it means something didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Construction costs, lower lease up, interest rates. I mean, it's usually a bad situation. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're going back, 
and you have an investor that says, no, I don't want to put more money in, but yet you need more money to keep that deal going. What do you do? And there's typically called dilution provisions that yes. say, okay, but we can raise it from other people, but we're going to dilute you because you don't participate. And that becomes not so fun conversation with your investors that don't want to participate, but you can't let one investor that might not have the ability to participate crater the whole deal. Yep. And, or you can go raise outside capital and restructure it a little bit so that the outside capital is incentivized to come in and participate. And so, um, you know, those dilution provisions and additional capital, again, think way ahead. I'm going to have problems. What happens if I have problems? Is this in, this investor's final dollar or are they sitting on some dry powder that will solve problems with us if we get into issues? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I always think of uh, the the structure of the deal and everything. Like people view it as, oh, this is to protect you. And I'm like, actually, this is to protect the investor. Meaning if I got 20 investors, those 20 investors are investing with me because of my track record, because I know what I'm doing, right? Those 20 investors don't know each other. And so we can't have one of the 20 making decisions for Steve, who Steve didn't invest with that other investor. He, he didn't give him his money. He doesn't want him to have any say or power in the deal. And the moment you give one uh, the, the ability to crater a deal, the risk has obviously increased astronomically. So those rules are very, very strict to protect the investors. If they don't think I'm going to do a good job, don't invest right? Yeah. Just don't invest. That's an easy decision. But you can't have risk within the fund or within the investors that will extrapolate to the other investors. You have to limit that. And that's really important piece of raising capital and being a fund manager is that you're actually protecting the investors from themselves as well. Because I've seen partnerships and I've seen deals that have absolutely cratered. Because one person either had a hard time, they went bankrupt, they needed money, they had say, and I don't like you operating this way. And all of a sudden, the other investors have to deal with the chaos. Um, and that is an absolute something you want to avoid. Well, we should talk a little bit about, you know, on the debt side, you know, the personal recourse required to get a deal done. Right? Yeah. And a lot of times for a first time investor or a small time investor, Finding a piece of land, easy. Uh, having a good idea to develop, easy, right? Yep. The thesis behind it, how to make money, the underwriting. Raising the equity might be easy as well. Finding a bank that will do that deal with you might be easy. What becomes the biggest challenge is the guarantee that stands behind the debt, right? The, yeah. the, the person that's, you know, the sponsor that's saying, if this deal goes bad, I will cover the bank's loss, right? And yeah. that's what, you know, banks are always looking for that warm body guarantee. And, and for a lot of people that get started in the business, that's, it's maybe what the, the toughest thing or the biggest hurdle to get over. And so how do you, how do you get over it? You know, lower leverage, you know, maybe 50% or 55% loan to cost. And, you know, then maybe the deal doesn't look as good. It's less yeah. risky, but it might not look as good from an yeah. investor return standpoint. But it's, it's less uh, well, risky, not because of inherent risk, but because you couldn't get the other option. And that's a very important difference for investors yeah. to know. You're now taking a less return due to the inability of the operator, not yeah. because of the deal. Yeah. 
you just adjusted the risk reward, you know, angle a little bit. Yeah. Uh, risk went down, reward went down because yep. you put less debt on it and you put more equity into that project. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It, you know, being that in, that's something about like our deals, I'm sure your deals or whatnot. We, that's the part of being that general partner, that GP. I personally guarantee all my deals. I'm the one that signs on that line. Um, and when we're talking about going out and raising capital, that's another reason when we talk about you're protecting the investors, but when you need to protect yourself, that's the big thing that comes in. My investors don't take that risk at all, right? So they yeah. risk their capital they put in. Everything yeah. else, I risk. And I risk it all. And so for uh, internally, if you're out raising capital, that's another reason if they're not signing on the, the debt, don't give them any say. They should have no say at all. It's like, I mean, you got to really be protective of that because the consequences for you as a sponsor, right? When you sign on that debt, that's a big responsibility for that asset. And if you have parties that are involved that don't have the risk, but then have say over how that risk is managed, um, that can get really scary really fast. Yeah, I, it's an interesting point because I think as an investor who invests in other real estate and whatnot, when, when I look at a sponsor, I, I think, what is their reward, but what is their risk what as well, risk? right? And you kind of want those to be aligned. Yeah. Like, yeah, they got a substantial reward, but what is their risk, right? Yeah. And so it could be reputational risk. It could be personal guarantee risk. Maybe they have substantial amounts of their own capital in the deal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can, as the sponsor, you can use that to your advantage when you're out raising equity and it's to say, look, yeah, my reward is this, but here's my risk. Here's I am personally risk. guaranteeing it. I have 10% of my own capital next to yours that gets treated exactly the same as yours in the deal. And yeah, this is my reputation because it's a small town and all these investors I know. And if I, if I blow this, you know, it's a huge hit to me. And so, um, Incentives yeah. are important. Incentives are important. And I look at the same thing, the structure and the deals we do. Like, yeah, we, like we make a good money, a good amount of money on the deal and everything if it works out. And that means you got to make a lot of money too. So the, the incentives with those sponsors should be, you make me a lot of money. I'm okay that you make money because you're taking all the risk, right? And if you're investing with sponsors, you don't want to have that short changed because you're changing the incentives for them and how that deal will work, how much they're putting it on it. You do want them to be rewarded for performance, um, especially when they're holding all that risk, because then all of a sudden the sponsors are like, well, I'm not going to work that hard on this, or maybe I'm going to do something else, right? Uh, because it, the risk to them versus reward where those limited partners are looking at, oh, well, you get this much and I only get this much. And you're like, wait, hey, we can equal that out you take all the risk too, right? So it's important to keep those things balanced and those incentives in the right place. Well, and, and you bring up a point of what I like to talk about, and, and it's anybody new getting into real estate development, you know, and they say, well, what's it like? You know, you make a lot of money. And I say, well, let me tell you what it's really like. You have, and in and, and real estate, it's so awesome because it's the most creative business I can think of, yeah. you know, you can, there's so many different ways to solve an issue or to make money. And you're going to think differently than how I'm going to think about it, but doesn't mean either one of us are right or wrong, but 
you know, truly what our business is, is you have an idea today and it's probably, you know, it's a great idea. And then you think about and test that idea for six to 12 months and what can go wrong and structure and this, and then you build it. You have that risk and controlling that. Then you lease it up. And the reality is from the day you had the idea to the day us as a sponsor really makes money could be three, four five years down the road. Yeah. By the way, everything has to go really well along the way, both stuff we can control and that we got to protect ourselves from stuff that we can't control. And if all that stuff goes our way, yes, we can make a lot of money. Yeah. But it's a long time with a lot of moving parts and a lot of risk associated. And a lot of work. That's something people like discount, which I always think is interesting. It's like, yeah, but your return is this. Yeah, but I have an entire company, teams of people that are working on this thing nonstop. Like those are real expenses that that sponsor has to pay. So like the return is actually not equal at all. It's like, you know, if he doesn't hit a certain level, those expenses are real. He actually pays those. He actually spends the opportunity cost. He actually has to work, right? And so you need to make sure that that it, that sponsor does have that reward for that extended time and everything. And most sponsors that I know put their investors first, right? The invest, yeah. investors get that first capital. The investors get that. So it's 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 a good deal actually being a limited partner right in these sponsored deals. That's why it's so popular. Cause you said you don't have to do any of the work yet. You get a huge return associated with it. Yeah. I'd say as a sponsor, you know, and we all do this, uh, uh, you, you should try to weed out any investor that is more focused on how much money you're going to make than how much money they're going to make. That's when you know, you're completely disaligned. Yep. It's like if you're worried about, uh, my upside, because I think you're getting, and, and you think your upside is not enough because you see my upside that, you know, that is not an investor we want to participate in. That's a recipe. No, that's a great point. hundred percent. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I had a, I had a partner, same thing on a, on a deal a long time ago. And it was like, we got them all their money back. The asset was one of the best performing assets ever in a year. It was a development project, just killed it. The returns were astronomical. And they said, well, so-and-so lowered their fee or whatnot. We want to start cutting you back after they'd all made their money and after all the work was done and everything. And you're going, wow, that is really short-term gains to be playing with somebody on something that particularly in this instant was a ongoing fee was minuscule. It just didn't even matter, yeah. even in the revenue. And it's immediate. that was immediately like, this isn't going to work. This is going to be a problem, right? Like we're growing at an astronomical rate. You've got all your money back. You've got a million in tax deductions. It's huge, right? And now you're concerned about a one percentage point in a fee on something that does millions. All of a sudden, those are red flags that you'd need to run away from. Yeah, and, and we say it a lot, you know, our goal, our structure is the quicker that we get our investors back their money, and the more money they get, the more money we get. So we, yes. you're right. We put them on top of us, ahead of us. Mm-hmm. You get treated the best first. And then once you've gotten, and you know, in our structure, it's an 8% return and all their capital back. That's when we start sharing and promote, you know? And so it's like, yeah, if we've given you an 8%, 
and you got all your capital back, of course we should start making money because for yes. us, that's three to four years down the road. That's a long time away. 100%. That's how we are too. It's like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense on uh, uh, at the end. And, and for the most part, and I think that's the thing is most investors, business owners, or real estate people, they fundamentally get that and they're like, thank you. Like, this is great. I, you perform so exceptional. Do I matter? Does it matter to me that you make a better return than me? And, and those are the people you want to have. And that comes down to this whole thing that you've talked about. And I really want to hit on this. It's a relationship business. It's in a relationship business and those relationships will determine the outcome. Your banking, your investor, your broker, all of those components. This is a team sport and it has to work for everybody. When you get people in there, they become like cancer where they're more concerned about them than everybody else and they can ruin the whole thing for everybody. And you got to make sure those relationships are strong and you got to make sure that those relationships are based on sound principles, not me first, not anything. It should be about the project and how that project is successful. And when the conversation is all dictated around that, it always goes well. When everybody's really concerned that this all goes well, that everybody makes lots of money, the project does good, they have trust in you as the operator, it, it's, it tends to be a really, really good thing. And I mean that for both the investors and the sponsors, right? Because I've seen sponsors that are horrible. And <laughs> that that's the reason. It's all about me, right? And they don't, they, they're not, they're more concerned about themselves than they are the success of that project. And that's a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're, you're dead on there. And um, uh, having an investor that appreciates what you do and appreciates all the other investors uh, you know, that's, you know, those are, those are great investors. And, yes. and I think other good investors know that something's going to go wrong and yeah. they know you're going to make a mistake. And it's not that you made a mistake. It's what happens after you made that yes. mistake. Did you work your way through it? Did you put the effort into it or did you give up and walk away? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where it becomes, and, and I'll say, you know, when you're evaluating an opportunity, don't force something. Don't force a deal because you fell in love with the real estate or, oh, I already bought the land. So I got to do this because a bad deal will take at least as much time as a good deal. And I would say in my circumstances, it's taken as much, a bad deal has taken as much time as two to five good deals. You'll get Mm -hmm. sucked in. So it's this opportunity cost, you know, opportunity loss that you have of, uh, now I got to work through this bad deal. I got to throw more capital at a bad deal. I got to throw more of my time at a bad deal. I got reputational risk on a bad deal. So, you know, uh, don't don't fall in love. Don't be forced to do a deal. Just you know, make sure all the boxes check before you go. No, I couldn't agree more. Such a great point. Like knowing knowing when to quit. Where I think a lot yes. of people, especially people that are, are, are minded like us, where we're like, oh, well, I'm never going to quit. Yeah. Like. I'm going to go in, I'm going to crush this thing. We're going to do awesome, whatever it is. But then you get in and you find out that that something isn't going to work out or there is a massive issue going on. Uh, Knowing when to quit and when to put that ego aside or whatever it is, your, your love for that asset or that, that real estate, whatever it is uh, and, and exit. Like that's really, really important. Cause again, you're selling yourself short. If you are missing all those amazing opportunities that are just, like it, it, that you're missing while you're focusing on this 
horrific deal over here. Well, and know? we see this all the time in markets. Like I see this, like people are like, oh yeah, but it's my home market, right? I know mm. this place. And I'm like, because you under, because you know the people in that market does not make up for the risk of the bad location and the bad demand, right? That, that doesn't like, it's not like you're, it's a risk. So because I grew up in this little city that somehow that is now that market is less risky than another city that has really high demand. Like, that's not true. That's not how it works. The people there don't care that you know that you grew, grew up in that city. The market doesn't care. Nobody cares about how you feel. And when you ignore those things, because what it comes down to is your comfort zone, then you're taking on opposite, way more risk. Because now you're saying, it's more comfortable for me to do this. So even if it doesn't do good, it's within my comfort zone and I'm going to do that. Um, and I, we see this all the time. People do this all the time. They're almost delusional about certain areas or certain markets or a certain piece of land or a business model that makes no sense at all. But yet I thought of it. It's my idea. I live here. And so because of that, it will somehow work or it, and, and it's just not true. And, and you look for people or reasons to validate your decision. Yes. Oh, my cousin, he lives in that area. He thinks it'd be a great idea because he's got a, no, a, a neighbor who's looking for self-storage or whatever it is. And, you know, we as humans look for reasons to validate our existence and our decisions. Yes. So that's that's very dangerous. Um, and, and I will say, you know, the best real estate decisions I think I've personally ever made were when we said it was, you know, the, the hardest decisions, we should not do that deal. Yeah. You know, we might own that land. We've got X dollars in it, but let's not do that deal. Yeah. Some of the worst decisions in real estate I've ever made are, oh, no, we got to do that deal. Oh, yeah, no, I think that deal's going to make. And, and But you, you had these warning signs of, you know, maybe it's not. You did it for whatever reason. You can always justify why you did or didn't do something. But, um, and you know. Asking yourself those tough questions, having a having a, a group of people around you that can give you honest feedback that know the industry. You know, you don't want to ask your brother-in-law who doesn't know anything about self-storage whether you should do it or not. You know, really find somebody that knows the business and yeah. have them give you their thoughts and insight. Well, more importantly, find somebody that can tell you why it won't work. So, like, mm -hmm. I, you know, and I've always thought this. I'm, as an investor and as an entrepreneur, we're inherently optimistic and that is what makes me good at what i do but at the same time that can be a weakness so i make sure i look for people financial people attorneys whoever it is to tell me all the reasons this may be a bad idea because i need that feedback I, of course i love the deal it's my deal of course i love this market right? I'm, I'm here and by saying that it's not just told my, my brain's telling myself it can, can't happen. You're bad. You're stupid, right? All that like lizard brain stuff starts to go on. So I need feedback that is for me analytical that I can look at and then measure those downsides and compare, right? And that's the biggest thing about it is getting the correct feedback, getting the correct numbers on both sides, good and bad, and then putting those things together and measuring the overall risk and how it will do in an analytical way of looking at it, not emotional. Not, it doesn't matter. There's always another deal. Always. There's always another deal. 
You're, you're right. I mean, developers are inherently optimists. And instead of asking yourself why I should do this deal, ask yourself why I shouldn't do this deal. And once you've really tested that out, if you find that there are good answers, you should probably do the deal. But take a different frame of mind on it. Yes. No, I love that. Well, this has just been amazing. Um, before we let you go, though, we, first of all, we really appreciate your time you spent and, and coming on here. But where should people go to find out more about you, what you do? Um, where can we send our listeners? We'll have it in the show notes. Sure. Um, you know, typical LinkedIn. Uh, you can find Drew Dolan on LinkedIn. Um, DXD. Our, our website's dxd.capital. I mean, what we are is a... Um, a development company, a real estate fund, uh, acting as a development company who is focused on data-driven decisions. And I think what's so interesting about storage, and this really goes to my background of being very diverse in what I've developed, is that um, in like senior living, for an example, the operational component of that asset class is everything. It's, it's almost not real estate. It's an operating business that utilizes real estate to be successful. And, uh, you know, I think 60% of whether you're successful in senior living or not is your operator. On the flip side with self-storage, you know, um, I think whether you're successful or not is when and, and where you make the decision to build. Mm -hmm. And using data to drive those decisions on, yes, this all makes sense, the rates and supply and existing demand and new demand. And so... What DXD really is, is a data-driven real estate fund focused on ground-up self-storage that is looking at all this enormous amounts of data and saying, this is where we should go. This is yeah. where it makes the most sense with the, the singular goal of making our investors really the most money. And inherently by doing that, we also financially do well ourselves. That's awesome. Love it. We'll, we'll put cool. all those links and everything here uh, in below. And uh, hey, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, hearing uh, you know, all your wisdom and everything, it's, it's very, very useful. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. This was really fun. Absolutely. And we'll have you on again. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. You too. 